All right, if you would please grab your Bibles and turn to Ezra chapter 4. We are going to continue with our fall series in the book of Ezra. If you've got a Black Pew Bible, that is... I have no idea. I think our projector needs some bulb. 376 is what it looks like it could be. Ezra chapter 4, page 376. Even as you're turning there, just to bring you up to speed on where we've been... As we've been in the book of Ezra, we're studying this idea of being renewed, of of having God bring us to a place of a renewed relationship with Himself. Uh, The book of Ezra happens after a season where God's people, having been flaunting their disobedience before God and ignoring their relationship with Him, where God said, fine, have it your way, have life without me, Babylon came through, wiped them out, carried them all off. And for 70 years, God's people were in exile in Babylon. And the book of Ezra happens when God says, your time in exile is over. I'm calling you back to Myself. He's inviting them into a renewed relationship with Himself. But if you've been with us for the past couple of weeks, you may also be saying, so I get this idea of renewal, of being invited back into relationship with God. That sounds really, really good. but it seems like it's a little harder than we might have at first thought. It seems like there might be more to it. We're we're realizing that there might be something a little bit uncomfortable with this idea of renewal. We're realizing renewal is not this thing that we can possess. Like, oh, there it is on the shelf. I would like some renewal, please. Nor is it a feeling that's like, oh, I just want the affective response. I I want to feel warm and fuzzy inside. It's not something we can even manufacture that by sheer willpower we can be renewed. Turns out that renewal might not be all joy and comfort and delight and peace. I mean, even just consider where where we've been over the last couple of weeks. In Ezra chapter 1, we were seeing that turns out renewal isn't even about us, per se. Right? God is the one who renews and He is the focus of our renewal. When we lift God high, that's where renewal begins. It's not about us. By Ezra chapter 2, in our long list of names, we saw that God welcomes everyone by name. And yet, here's the uncomfortable part, He does invite us on His own terms. He says He has to be first. And then even just last week, if you were here, and we studied Ezra chapter 3, we saw that renewal is something that doesn't happen once everything is fine. Once we're all safe and once we have our lives cleaned up. But renewal actually happens as we worship, even in the midst of fear and rubble. And we're saying to ourselves, so this is not what I thought of when I first thought of renewal. And now by the time we get to Ezra chapter 4, we're thinking, wait, it's, it's not about me. It's all about God. He welcomes us by name, but on His terms. And, and it might have to happen in the midst of fear and rubble, wait, this is renewal? This might not even be what I've signed up for. But now we come to Ezra 4. Now the renewal will come, right? We've had the introductory stuff. We've had all the warnings and the cautions. Let's get to the good stuff. Let's get to where the renewal actually happens. So look down with me at Ezra chapter 4. We're just going to read through the first five verses. You can follow along with me as I read. Here comes the renewal. Oh, I'm so excited. 
Starting in verse 1, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, let us help you build because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. And they bribed officials to work against them and to frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. This is the word of the Lord. Wait, this is not smooth sailing. Where's the renewal that I keep being promised? Where, where, where's the good feelings? Where, this is not renewal. This is opposition. Did you hear the text that was just read? They are being actively and directly opposed in this renewal of their relationship with God. It starts with, with distortion. It starts with an insidious attempt. That's a great word, insidious. It just rolls off the tongue. It starts with an insidious attempt to get inside their worship context in order to distort it from what God wants. If you look at verses 1 to 3, this is where we see this happening. Right? The, the nations, the people who were not carried off into exile, those who remained back in the area around Jerusalem and the nations around, they came in and they said, hey, let us help you build. This is in verse 2. Let us help you build because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to Him. And you think, that's really nice of them. How great. They want to come help too. The more the merrier, right? Many hands make for light work. That sounds reasonable, helpful, and genuine. So how do God's people respond to such a gracious offer? No. You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it. Now that seems downright exclusive. This is an example of not playing well with others. It's, it's Actually, it's just being downright snooty. The pe- they're not letting those who remained in the areas around Jerusalem be part of their rebuilding projects. Why not? Well, because they knew who these people were and they knew what they were up to. I mean, consider how they even described themselves. After their offer of help, let us help you build because like you, we seek your God. And we've been doing this since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. And it's just, oh, these are not the people of God. These are Assyrians who when the northern kingdom was conquered, those people were deported, and the Assyrians brought in their own people to repopulate the land, which meant they brought in their own people, they brought in their own gods that were being worshipped. This is not about ethnicity, this is not about race, this is about worship. And the surrounding peoples that had remained behind worshipped their gods, 
they worshipped every god they could get their hands on. The, the order of the day was religious syncretism, right? It's not one god, but all the gods. The, the, the prevailing mindset of the ancient Near East was if we can appease the gods and keep them from smiting us, maybe we'll get through the year. And so they got their hands on every god they could. And we'll worship this god, we'll worship the Baals, we'll worship the Asherah poles, we'll, we'll do the whole gamut so that we cover all of our bases. And you're building a temple to the God of Israel? Well, we'll worship Him too. Because we've got to cover all our bases. Syncretism. Adding to and worshiping everything you can get your hands on. It turns out, though, that God's not a big fan of that approach. You might remember the Ten Commandments. Have no other gods before me, and don't make any images, and don't bow down to anything, anyone. Worship the Lord and serve Him only. That's kind of been the problem throughout Israel's history. Sometimes it's complete apostasy. They just turn their back on God and walk away. But far more often, it's God plus. It's God plus whatever's trendy. God plus whatever everyone else is doing. It's God plus the prevailing wisdom of the day. And it is taking the pure faith that God is calling for and distorting it by adding all this other garbage to it. And the author of Ezra tips us off to this, even in verse 1. Just in case we thought these were the good guys. Remember how verse 1 begins. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin showed up. Right? There's, there's no lack of clarity here. This is a group of surrounding peoples that were trying to sort of infiltrate the rebuilding of the temple in order that they might get in at the ground level and undermine the renewal that God was trying to bring about. It is a distortion of worship. It's them saying, basically, just appease all the gods and it will go well for you. Or, let's spin it to today's vocabulary. All religions basically say the same thing. Just be a good person and you'll go to heaven, right? Isn't that what Christianity is all about? This is what I mean by a distortion of true worship. And fortunately and beautifully, the people of God don't fall for it. They don't succumb to it. They don't cave in. They remain steadfast in their purpose and their goal. And they say, no. They resist the distortion of their worship. So then their enemies try a second approach. If we can't distort it from the inside, we'll create obstructions from the outside. Right? Then they mess with the whole system of the renewal that's trying to take place. You look down to verses 4 and 5, and you see that the, after this, yes, now here, then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. Right? So now they're trying intimidation tactics. They're being obstructionist. And now they're, then it goes on. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans. Now some of you have been to the building department here in Gloucester and you know what you have to go through to get a building permit. And, and you know how it's impossible in the first place, much less if someone's bribing the officials against you. In order to get anything built, there are hoops to jump through and there's all kinds of opportunities for someone to mess with that process. Especially to do so 
dishonestly. If you can't infiltrate them to mess up the renewal from the inside, let's just go overt. Let's just threaten people. Let's just bribe officials. Let's frustrate their plans. And then the rest of the chapter actually goes on to give you an example of this. Right, so if you jump down to verse uh, 6 and pretty much the rest of the chapter, we're given an example of the kind of opposition, the, this obstructionism that's at play here. Right, the, the people gather and the, these, these enemies, these surrounding peoples, write a letter to the king. And that letter says, look at your history books. This city of Jerusalem, it has a history of rebellion. You don't want to let them rebuild. Because that is not going to go well for you. Down by verse 12, an excerpt of the letter that they send to the king. This letter says, The king should know that the people who came up to us from you, they've gone to Jerusalem, they're rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They're restoring walls, they're repairing foundations. We informed the king that if this city is built and its walls are restored, you will be left with nothing in trans-Euphrates. And how does the king reply? Excellent point, he says. So issue an order to these men to stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of royal interests? The schemers win. That's so wrong. But it's a perfect and devastatingly effective example of what it looks like to be an obstruction as the people of God seek this renewal. They effectively get a stop work order from the king of Persia himself. Now I want to pause here for just a moment to go on a quick aside where you're going to take an excursus. Because if you are reading closely, there's a couple of things that make reading Ezra and Nehemiah kind of challenging. One of them is that if you're reading closely, you might notice what might be considered some timeline inconsistencies in the book. So for example, when that letter comes up into play, in verse 6, it says, at the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, they lodged an accusation against the people of Judah and Jerusalem, and in the days of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, a bunch of people whose names I won't try and pronounce, and the rest of his associates wrote a letter to Artaxerxes. And that might just be like Persian babble to you. You might also say, wait a second, I thought Cyrus was king of Persia. Where did Xerxes come from? And if we're going to say that Xerxes is the king of Persia, well then where did Artaxerxes come from? And who are these people and why are they here? But I... So it's worth actually exploring that a little bit to say, can I trust the Scriptures here? It, it seems like they've got some things mixed up. It seems like the timeline's beginning to fall apart. So as a preaching team, we spent some time to try and build a timeline. This is what we came up with. Ideally, this is completely illegible from where you're sitting. And then let's see if this works. There it is. Okay. So over here, we have Babylon. That's, that's that older kingdom that the Persians... Then the Persians come along, and they destroy Babylon and take over, and then eventually the Persians are wiped out by the Greeks. Alexander the Great shows up on the scene. So basically, Ezra and Nehemiah happen between the Babylonians and the Greeks. This is the Persian period that we're talking about. And if we zoom in a little bit closer, you might be able to see some of this information, although it is still highly doubtful. 
Uh, so over here we have Ezra 1, and that's happening in about 538 B.C. Under the reign of the king of Cyrus, they return. That edict is issued. Ezra chapter 2 happens, the big list of names. They take the census and they head out. Ezra chapter 3 happens by 532 B.C., and the work on the temple begins, and then Ezra 4 happens by probably about 534 B.C. And this is all clearly happening under the reign of Cyrus. And then the people write a letter, and they write a letter to the king Xerxes. Wait, that's over here. And then the letter to Artaxerxes. He's even later. There's like a 70-year gap in here. Did the Bible just get this wrong? That's awkward. But it's actually an important question because if we're going to build our lives on the Scriptures, we need them to be trustworthy. We can't let them just be wrong in places. So what is actually happening here? And this is the reason for the excursus is to recognize that there is a difference between the way we do history today and the way they did history back then. Consider a comparison between what we might consider modern history and ancient history. See, with us moderns, we're really into chronology. We really like things to go in a nice sequential order, right? You look at a history textbook and how is it arranged? It is arranged chronologically with all the dates and the margins so that you can orient yourself. If you're telling a story, you tell it in order. Interestingly enough, in the ancient world, that was less important. The, the accuracy of the events mattered, but there was a certain freedom to rearrange the events because chronology didn't drive the storytelling, meaning did. And so they had some freedom in the way that they recounted the stories to move some things around in order that the story might convey meaning. And when you get to biblical authors, there's a very clear meaning in view. And that not being concerned with chronology as much as theology. The point is that the biblical authors are telling the great story of God. And so they have the opportunity to move something. We see it in the Gospels, right? We've got three different Gospels. And you're like, wait, that miracle happened early here, but it happens late in Luke. What happened? Or one of the Gospels, Luke will take three miracles and put them back to back to back because he wants to show you the escalation and the power of Jesus. And so he puts those back to back. But another Gospel writer will only include one of them over here. That's, that's not that the Bible's wrong or inaccurate. That's the authors of Scripture arranging the material so that the material teaches meaning. And our modern ears go, no, you can't do that. Interesting, I, the sign of the cross. And, and, and our, biblical, our biblical minds go, yes, because of the cross. We arrange it so the cross is the center of everything. And so even in a book like this, what we see happening in Ezra chapter 4 is that across the entire span of this Persian period, the people of God were facing opposition. And so in Ezra 4, as the temple is being rebuilt, they're experiencing opposition. The author says, you know, there's a really good example of this that happens later. Under Xerxes it happened, and here's, we actually have the letter that they wrote to Artaxerxes and the reply that we got back. And so as he's talking about the opposition that happens earlier, he grabs this stuff and says, look, here's an example. I'm going to use that example in my telling of the story here in Ezra 4. It's not dissimilar to a biography that, you know, you could arrange the biography chronologically, or you might start the biography with like this, one of the most famous moments in the person's life. And then you have to jump back in time, like a flashback to understand what got you there. And then partway through, you might flash forward to say, now, you're going to understand how this event here really foreshadows something that happened. And there's some jumping around in the timeline to tell the story so that meaning comes through. 
I'm going to on. The, the point here of the excursus is this. Sometimes biblical accounts rearrange the timeline in order to communicate the God-centeredness of the story. So when it comes right down to it, you see something like this in Ezra, and a superficial reading says, oh no, crisis of faith. It looks like the author of Ezra messed it up. Can we trust the Scriptures? But a robust reading of Scripture understands Scripture is literature, and the authors and compilers of these books had a certain measure of ancient freedom in terms of the style of how they arranged their stories. To take the actual events as they happened and to put them into a different order in order to communicate meaning. Make sense? So what was the meaning? Well, the author who's writing Ezra is trying to describe this process of renewal. And it's turning out that it's quite a process. It's not a quick fix. It's not an instant, just add water and poof, you have sea monkeys. It's a process that happens over time. It's a process that even sees opposition as maybe even part of the process. Opposition might even be part of the process of renewal. Whether it's the distortion of worship or whether it's the obstruction of worship, whether it's someone trying to infiltrate and mess up worship from within the community or whether it's overt opposition from outside the community. God's people are facing opposition right in the midst of this renewal. And it's at this point that I would love to tell you that they held firm and they were not thwarted and they overcame. But they didn't. If you go to the very last verse in the chapter, thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. The entire forward momentum stalls out for 13 years. And it seems like the bad guys win. And you're saying, this is a terrible story. Why are you telling this to us, Tim? Well, because it's a real story. And if you've ever been on a journey of renewal, of seeking after the Lord, it's a story that actually will resonate with you. Because we face opposition in our journeys of renewal as well. We see it globally. We see it all around the world, right? Christians around the world being persecuted. Chinese churches installing video surveillance in the foyers of each of the churches. The government doing this so they can track who's going in and who's going out. So they can begin to compile lists of dissidents in their midst. Or pastors spending two years in Turkish prisons. There is opposition to life with God. But if that's a little bit too broad, maybe I'm not talking about opposition on a global scale, maybe I'm not talking about opposition in terms of any kind of political agenda or opposition to Christianity in our culture. What, what I think resonates most with us is when we're talking about a God who says, come to me. 
and we respond to that initiative, my experience is that everything gets hard really fast. Maybe, maybe you're the only Christian in your family. And there's absolutely no friction as long as you can distort your faith in Jesus to become more palatable. Right? You pretend that every religion is basically the same, even though what Jesus did is categorically unique in the history of the world. You dare not imply that trusting Jesus is the only way to know God. Thanksgiving approaches quickly. How dare you actually be thankful to the living God? It's much safer if we just play the pluralism card. It's much safer if we just pretend all religions basically say the same thing. So why can't we all just get along? If you actually live out your faith, it will create friction. There will be opposition. If you respond to God's invitation to be renewed, there will be opposition. Or maybe you're the only Christian in your workplace and there's no friction as long as you keep your Christianity tucked inside and never to be seen. Your faith belongs in your home and in your church. Unless, of course, you're a Christian, in which case, following Jesus is your primary organizing principle for all of life, and it belongs in your workplace and in your schools and in your neighborhoods and in your families. All of life. Let everything that you do be to the glory of God. So what happens when you refuse to fudge that number on that report? And what happens when you refuse to operate with less than good integrity? Or what happens when you start a noontime prayer group, but they won't give you space? And suddenly there's kickback. If you actually live out your faith, even if you're taking baby steps in terms of this idea of renewal, saying, I'm looking for God. I'm seeking God. I want Him to rescue me. The second you take a step closer to Him, opposition comes. I mean, maybe you've just met Jesus. You've given your life to Him and then you're thinking about being baptized. You know, an unbelieving world looks at baptism and says, you all crazy. You're really going to go into the ocean at that time of year and get thrown under the water? You're all religious fanatics. Your family thinks you're foolish. Your friends think you're crazy. And there is a temptation there to distort your faith and to say, yeah, it's really not a big deal. It, it's just a, to diminish it instead of celebrating it and proclaiming it and declaring it as central to your identity. Well, I, I think this is a very real place that we are and i guess what i'm saying here is that this is a story that teaches when god's people respond to his initiative when god says i want to renew you and you say yes lord then you're going to face opposition the real question is not if i will face opposition like maybe i can sneak by it's more of when I face opposition. But the real question in my heart is why? Why would God allow opposition when we're seeking renewal? Doesn't that just seem counterproductive to you? God says, I want to renew you. And you say, yes, Lord. And he goes, ha ha, stop. That just seems a little capricious to me on the surface. 
And my heart says, I need to understand why. And we don't get that out of this particular text. But we do get it from the context of the rest of Scripture. And I would propose to you two inferences that are backed up by other places in Scripture why God might allow opposition when He's renewing us. And the first is this. I believe the Scriptures teach that God is more concerned with His own glory than with yours. If we, God is more concerned with His glory than with ours. If we respond to God's invitation to be renewed and we take that step forward, it is human nature to claim that victory for ourselves. I've been renewed. Look what I did. In fact, it, it, I worked really hard at it and I, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps and I got disciplined and I began to exercise and sleep better and look what I did. I was able to renew myself. So go buy my book. You too could be renewed if you follow these easy seven steps. Now whether you write a book about it or not, the heart condition there, the human heart, man, it's sneaky. (laughs) And it sneaks in thinking you've accomplished something with your own renewal. And that flies in the face of everything we know about who God is and what the Gospel stands for. We do not accomplish our own renewal any more than we accomplish our own salvation. The whole point of the Gospel is that we can know God and enjoy a relationship with Him and it's not because we've done anything to deserve it. We couldn't earn it. It's because Jesus offered His own life in our place. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's based on His death on the cross. It's based on His resurrection from the dead. This is what Ephesians talks about in Ephesians chapter 2 when Paul writes, for it is by grace you've been saved. Unmerited favor. God loves you. Deal with it. That's what the word grace means. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. And it's not by work so that no one can boast or write the book. Paul knows the human heart will claim credit for everything. But God is jealous for His own glory. And is it possible that God allows opposition so that we have no other choice but to cast ourselves at His feet in complete desperation and say, help me, Lord. And when our hearts are there, God smiles and says, now we can start the renewal process. You got over yourself. Great, now you can see me for who I am. God is more concerned with His glory than with ours. And when we're willing to lay down our glory and to throw ourselves at His feet saying, Lord, have mercy, this opposition is too much for me, that's where renewal happens. But I think there's a second uh, inference that I would make. And I think the Scriptures also teach that God is more concerned with our character than with our comfort. I don't like this one. But I'm going to teach it anyways. That God is more concerned with our character than with our comfort. It is also human nature, not just to claim the credit for everything, but to avoid hardship, pain, suffering, and inconvenience at all costs. 
And then we come to a book like James, where in the first chapter it says, So consider it joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Time out does not compute. Trials does not equal joy in my experience. But in God's economy, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And so you've got to let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. This is talking about our character. More important than feeling renewed is being mature and having our identity fully rooted in Christ. Look, sometimes we get caught in this, this uh, rapidly and vastly alternating cycle where we go, mountaintop experience with God. Oh, He's amazing. Crushing depression and distance from God. Until, oh, I get the mountaintop experience because I went on a retreat. Boom, and then I came back from the retreat. And now I'm devastated and depressed again. And, oh, I went to summer camp. And oh, now I'm... De- First of all, that's just exhausting. But secondly, it evidences a lack of maturity. That's being blown and tossed by the wind. Far more interesting to God is to develop in us a character that remains... Ste- yes, there's always going to be ups and downs in the Christian life. I'm not denying that. I'm just saying they shouldn't be the ups and downs. But they should be a steady and gradual growth of character and wisdom. So that the storms and trials of life no longer threaten to overwhelm us. Because we expect them. And we've learned how to lean on God through them. And I believe that you only learn that when you're faced with opposition. You don't learn that in the peace times. That's a wartime skill. God is more concerned with our character than our comfort. Look, here's here's what it all comes down to. If we're seeking renewal, we're not seeking this dreamy, idyllic state, some emotional catharsis where we can finally just ah, be at peace. That's just not going to happen in this world in which we live. After all, there is an enemy out there. And the last thing Satan wants, the last thing he wants is to see God's people stirred from their slumber. His best play, if we are followers of Jesus, is to get us sleepy. Is to get us discouraged. Is to get us alone and isolated from one another. That he might watch our relationship with our God grow distant and might see our impact on the world disappear. The absolute last thing He wants is for us to be awakened from our slumber. The last thing He wants is for God's people to be renewed. So you're surprised when renewal starts that we face opposition? The people in Ezra's day faced opposition to their renewal. Attempts to distort their worship, to water it down, or to obstruct it altogether. They faced opposition in their day. And here's what God's saying to us as His people in this day. That if you want to be renewed, you will face opposition. You will face opposition to the process of being renewed. So how will you handle it? 
how do you handle it when we encounter opposition? When we're in that fragile place of even taking those first baby steps towards God. I'm landing the plane with three encouragements for you. Here's how you handle it. Number one, expect it. Don't be surprised when opposition comes. Don't be offended when opposition comes. Don't think it's an anomaly or it's something out of place or that you're being singled out for some special hardship or trial. Because we're seeing in Ezra and we're seeing in all of Scripture that God does good work in the midst of those trials. And He does work there that He can't do other places in us. It is precisely in the midst of trials and hardship that the renewal happens. So we should not be like, oh, woe is me. Can you believe this happened to me? We should rather say, yeah, here it comes. I knew it was coming. <laughs> it was just a matter of time. Expect it. That's part of how you're going to handle it. Number two, understand it. Understand that when opposition drives you to lean on the Lord in desperation, He is glorified because you're treating Him as God. You're acknowledging that He alone has the power to sustain you through whatever trial. And that is an act of worship. And as we lean on the Lord in the face of opposition, time and time again, our own character is shaped along the way. And we say, wow. We look back 20 years later and say, I would never choose to go through that again. But I am different because the Lord carried me through that. I will admit, these are lessons better learned when you're not in the midst of that opposition. Because if you've been there and someone says, you know what, you just need to pray more, you want to punch them in the mouth. Or, oh, you just need to understand God's working on your character. I never want to see you again. So the, the point is, let's see if we can understand it before we get there. So that when we're there, God can remind us instead of teach us. I think that's clutch. Expect it. Understand it. And then for the love of God, draw near to Him when you're in the midst of it. This is what it's all for. And this is what renewal is. This is not something you have to do. You don't have to manufacture. You just need to trust God more. No, you need to release more. You need to let go more. You need to stop trying to control the situation and, and manage the situation. You need to fall into God's arms, believe His promises that He loves you, and to persevere right through the midst of whatever it is that you're going through. And you're going to stand on the Gospel of Jesus Christ saying, you've done that for me? Then I'm pretty sure you've got me. And I'll worship you regardless of my circumstances because you are good and your love endures forever. And that, my friends, is renewal. Right? We're not chasing a feeling. Renewal is not a feeling. We're not chasing comfort or ease or a freedom from the oppression that we're experiencing or the challenges that we're going through. We're not chasing some utopia, some state of eternal rest and delight. We're actually learning that renewal isn't even about us. 
It's about seeing God clearly. It's about worshiping Him in the midst of our fear and our rubble. It's about encountering opposition and persevering through it, not by powering through, but by falling into the arms of Jesus. And you say, these things actually sound hard. Yes. Because I think renewal can be hard. But renewal is nothing more. If it all comes down, if we've, if we've learned nothing else over the first four chapters of Ezra, renewal is nothing more than the renewal of our relationship with God. So anything that drives us back into that relationship is part of God's purposes for renewal. Renewal is just chasing after the God who's chasing after us. And He's teaching us to know Him as He is. Not as we wish He was. <laughs> not as we've invented Him to be. Or not as we've remade Him to be more palatable in our culture and in our day and in our time. And that rarely comes through comfort and ease. The book of Ezra offers us a new way to think about renewal. That it might be something that happens in the midst of opposition and in the midst of fear, and in the midst of rubble, as we learn that God is sufficient for everything we face, and we get to fall in love with Him all over again because of it. So, on this journey to renewal, when you face opposition, you expected it. You knew it was coming. You understand it a little bit better, and what God might be doing through it. So let your heart just fall into His arms and let Him carry you through. Because as you fall in His arms, you'll finally find the place where you will be renewed. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, I wish life was easier. And we've got it pretty good here. But I wish there was comfort and ease. I wish a survey of the lives in this room would reveal nothing but comfort and ease and delight. But for whatever reason... This room is actually filled with stories of challenges and opposition and fear and rubble. And so this morning I thank you that you're a God who meets us in that mess. That you don't wait for us to not be afraid. You don't wait for us to clean up all of our own rubble. You don't wait until the opposition has passed. But right in the middle of the mess, that's where we find you. And that you're waiting to just fold us into the great bear hug of God. Oh, we need you. So I ask, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you will invade the fear and the rubble and the opposition of the lives in this room, of this church. And yes, I will pray for freedom from fear. I will pray that rubble will be reclaimed, and I do pray for freedom from opposition. But I also pray that while those things are being worked out, 
Oh God, be near to Your people. Sustain us in the midst of that. That we might know Your nearness. That we might sense Your presence. That Your strength would flow through us. That we might persevere through even the hard places and the dark places. And that You might shape us and bring glory to Yourself above all. God, we lack the strength to even walk forward. So carry us, O God. And in the carrying, show Yourself glorious. In Jesus' name, Amen.